So this morning we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 17 through 20. And I chose this passage because um, it seems to me that with all that's going on, uh, you might well be thinking more than usual about some really serious things, uh, like maybe how to care for your family, how to provide um, in a time of economic uncertainty or crisis. You know, some people are getting laid off, some getting reduced hours, some even losing their job. And maybe that kind of caught you unprepared, and now you're thinking, well, how, how do I provide for my family at a time like this? Or uh, maybe it's a time to reevaluate your priorities. You know, how have you been spending your time and your energy? And uh, have you been uh, investing in things that really matter? Uh, are there priorities that need to change? And then even more serious, in light of this new virus uh, that some people are dying from, well, what about death and what comes after? Uh, am I ready for that? You know, death is not something that many of us spend much time thinking about on a daily basis, but, you know, it's one of those things that whether it's through coronavirus or something else, at some point we are going to die. Am I ready for that? Are the people I love ready for that? And that leads to the most serious and most important issue of all. How is it between me and, and God? Uh, what does he think of me? Am, am I right with him? Am I okay with him? And is it even possible to know for sure if I am? It seems like it's easy when things are normal to be so busy in our daily routines of living that we don't really take time to think about these important issues. And so it's, it seems to me that if this crisis can slow us down enough to do some serious thinking about some serious issues, then that will be a really good outcome of something that's really difficult. And based on some things Jesus has said, I feel pretty confident in believing that one reason, probably not the only reason, but one big reason why he's allowed this coronavirus thing to happen in the first place is to get us to think seriously about God and about what it means to know him and be right with him. For example, there's a story he told one day. It's recorded for us in the book of Luke, chapter 12. And it goes like this. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. So here's a man, he's a farmer, and he's doing very well, and he's got a bumper crop on his hands. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. There's too much for just me. I've got to figure out what to do. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. 
eat, drink, and be merry. And I have to just stop right there and say, doesn't that sound a lot like the typical American definition of the good life? Work really hard, acquire as much wealth as you can so that you can have a comfortable life, a comfortable retirement. Verse 20, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This, says Jesus, is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. You know, of all the things that God might say to me, you fool is definitely not one I want to hear. Why does God call this man a fool? Well, in, in the short answer is because he left God completely out of his thinking. He was so preoccupied with, an, with acquiring an abundance for himself so he could be comfortable that he never bothered to ask what God thinks of that and how God wanted him to live. And so according to Jesus, we really ought to do some serious thinking about God and how he wants us to live. And it seems to me that this current crisis is a great opportunity to do that. So that's what I want to do in our time together today. I think that most people have an idea that God wants us to be good. The question is, how good do we have to be? How good does he want us to be? Uh, How good do we have to be to satisfy him? Um, It seems like many people think that as long as they're not as bad as they could be, then they're probably okay. Um, So people think, well, I'm not that bad. Uh, I'm not as bad as some other people, like Hitler. Uh, So I'm probably okay as far as God is concerned, because surely he's not going to put me in the same category as a mass murderer And it's as if God grades on a curve, and the curve has been lowered because of some really bad people. So as long as, you know, I'm not a murderer or a rapist or a child abuser, I'm probably okay. God God should give me a pass. Well, if you think that or think anything like that, I just want to suggest that you brace yourself Because I believe Jesus is about to get in your face for your good. Um, What he says on this topic of being good enough for God really confronts and challenges what we naturally think on this. And because he loves you, he does not want you to believe a falsehood that could ultimately ruin you. And this idea that that God grades on a curve and as long as you don't commit a major crime, you're probably okay with him, 
That, according to Jesus, is a total falsehood. So let's pay careful attention to what he says here. So this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And I'm going to focus especially in on verse 20 when we get there. So beginning at 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, basically our Old Testaments. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me read that one again. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If that last verse bothers you, that's a good thing, because it should. And I am confident it really bothered the people who first heard it. Those Jewish people who were listening to Jesus on that hillside in Galilee, because this is, this is part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, this, this discourse Jesus gave uh, there by the Sea of Galilee. Those Jewish people who were listening to him would have been absolutely shocked out of their minds at what he just said. Because they could not have conceived of anybody more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. Those guys were the good guys. Those were the guys who knew their Bibles forwards and backwards. Uh, And they were meticulous about keeping all of the rules and commands and regulations in the law that God had given through Moses. Nobody worked harder than they did to be good. And yet, here's Jesus, and he's saying, they're not good enough. What? What? How can that be? If the scribes and the Pharisees aren't good enough to enter God's kingdom, who in the world is? And we have to feel the force of what Jesus is saying here and how this would have come across. This would be like somebody today saying, you know, unless your intelligence is greater than that of Albert Einstein, you're not going to heaven. Or unless your wealth is greater than that of Bill Gates, you don't have a chance. Or unless your athletic ability exceeds that of LeBron James, you're not getting in. I mean, what Jesus is saying here sounds utterly impossible. What in the world is he doing here? Is he just basically trying to discourage all these people and say, you know, just get lost. You don't have any hope. No. What he's doing is telling us that what we naturally think about being good enough for God is wrong. 
It's just flat out wrong. And he wants to get our attention. He wants us to take this very seriously. And let's be honest, sometimes that's hard for us to do. Because typically, we have other concerns that preoccupy us more, feel to us more urgent than God's kingdom and whether or not we're a part of it. So, you know, we might think something like, well, yeah, you know, God's important and, and whether or not I'm right with him, yeah, that matters, but I can, I can put that off. You know, I'm, I'm young or I'm not going to die today, and so I'll worry about that later. Right now, I need to worry about or be focused on getting a job or finishing school or finding that right person to marry or starting a family or something. Um, it's lots of things can feel more important to us. So I don't know for you today how important it feels to you to know that you're a part of God's kingdom, to know that you are right with him, that he approves of you, that he accepts you, that he is committed to working all things together for your good, and that when you die, he will welcome you into his presence. I don't know how much that matters to you today, but I can promise you, based on what Jesus says here and elsewhere, it really is the most important issue there is. In fact, it's the issue that puts every other issue into perspective. And one day, when you leave this life and face what comes next, it's going to matter to you more than anything else ever did. So let's, let's take some time and, and think this through carefully. And I, I really urge you not to think, oh, yeah, I've heard this before. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, I, I know all about that. Don't do that. Take this opportunity, this unique time that God is giving us. Take this opportunity to pay attention to Jesus and what he says, maybe more than you ever have. Imagine you're there on that hillside and you're listening to him. What is Jesus trying to say to you? What does he want you to hear? What does he want you to think about? Well, he's telling you, and not just you, but me. When I say the word you, I don't mean just you, but you. Telling you what you need to be included in God's kingdom. To be a part of his people. What do you need? Well, he says, what you need is righteousness. That, according to Jesus, is the issue. Whether or not you enter his kingdom depends on whether or not you have righteousness. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And notice, it's your righteousness. It's not someone else's. It's not your mom's righteousness or your dad's or your friend's or your spouse's, or your youth leader, or anybody else. It's your 
personal righteousness that's the issue. Do you? Do you have a righteousness that's greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees? You know, I've been a pastor for kind of a long time now, and it's, it's uh, kind of funny. Anytime I meet somebody and they find out I'm a pastor, if, if they're not already a believer in Jesus, uh, they're not really used to church and things like that, they almost always do the same thing. They tell me about a relative they have who's religious. And I think that's their way of, you know, trying to establish common ground. So they'll, they'll say something like, oh, oh, you're a pastor, huh? Huh. You know, I've got an aunt who lives in Nebraska who goes to church. Yeah, yeah, weird old Aunt Margaret. And it, and it seems like everybody's got a weird old Aunt Margaret. Well, when it comes to you being included in God's kingdom, it's not about Aunt Margaret or anyone else. It's about you. And it's not about how religious you are, but about how righteous you are. And there is a really big difference. Religious, well, that can mean a lot of different things to different people. It could mean how committed you are to certain religious teachings or how scrupulous you are about observing certain rituals or how often you attend religious services or or whatever. Righteous on the other hand, means something very specific. To be righteous means to be right with God. To be right as far as he's concerned. It means you meet his standard for what's good and what's true. And what is so absolutely shocking about what Jesus says here is that you can be very religious, very religious, like the scribes and the Pharisees were, and not be righteous, not meet God's standard. And we'll talk about what God's standard is here in a minute, but the point here is you've got to meet that standard to enter God's kingdom. God values righteousness so highly that he requires it of every single person in his kingdom. If you have it, you're in. And if you don't have it, you're out. No exceptions. You need righteousness. Well, that's not the whole answer, though. You not only need righteousness, you need the right kind of righteousness. Something was wrong with the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The most religious, the most scrupulously moral people that anybody knew. Something was wrong. Their righteousness wasn't good enough. Well, what was wrong with it? Two things. First place, it was a righteousness that was only external. It was outward. It was all about actions. But according to Jesus, as we'll see here, true righteousness 
is also internal. That is, it deals with our thoughts and our, our desires and our motives. And he makes that very clear in the very next verses, Matthew 5.21. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And 527, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you see, just to be able to say, well, I've never killed anybody. That's funny. That's one of the things people will say. It's like, you consider yourself a good person. Well, yeah, I'm a good person. I've never killed anyone. Well, that's good. That's really good. Uh, Or to say, I've never actually cheated on my spouse. That's good too. But not committing murder, not committing adultery, that doesn't make you righteous as far as God is concerned because his standard goes deeper and deals with internal stuff like hate and lust. True righteousness is a matter of the heart as well as the actions. And that was part of the problem with scribes and Pharisees. They weren't concerned enough about their hearts. But there's another problem. And that is that their righteousness was based on personal achievement. And what I mean by that is that these guys thought that righteousness was something that they could attain to by their own efforts. That they could basically earn God's approval if they carefully obeyed all of God's rules. But that can't happen. That can't happen uh, because there's a bigger problem. Now, listen carefully because this is one of those things people get confused on. It's not that the problem was that they tried to obey God's rules. That, that's not the problem. The problem's not obedience to God's rules. We should obey God's rules. The problem is if we think we can earn God's approval by keeping the rules. That won't happen because God's standard is higher than we can meet. For one thing, we've already seen that God's standard is heart righteousness, and you and I can't achieve that by our own efforts because we're fallen. We're part of a fallen race. And I don't think I have to prove that to you. You know your heart. Just ask yourself. Has every thought you've ever thought, does every desire you ever have, does every motive you ever have, does it measure up to God's standard of perfect goodness? Can you say that? No, you can't say that, and I can't either, because we know it's not true. So any notion of righteousness that's based on human achievement, is doomed to fail for that reason alone. But there's actually even a bigger problem with with thinking of righteousness as a human achievement. Pursuing that kind of righteousness in that way actually dishonors God. And you think, "Well, well, how could that be? If I'm trying really hard to be good, how can that dishonor God? Because who am I trusting in 
if I'm thinking that it's my goodness, my performance, my achievement that earns God's approval. I'm, I'm relying on myself. I'm trusting in myself. We're trusting in ourselves and what we can do for God instead of trusting in God and what He does for us. And see, Jesus wants to free us from this delusion because it's deadly. He's telling us that we need a completely different kind of righteousness. A true righteousness that involves both our hearts and our actions, and even more importantly, a righteousness that we can't achieve by our own performance. Now, if you're tracking with this, if you're following, at this point, you should probably be thinking something like this. Is he serious? If this is really true, if, if the true standard of righteousness is really so high that even the most religious, most scrupulously moral, obedient people on earth can't achieve it, well, then the only possible way I could get in to the kingdom of God is by the grace of God. That's it. That's absolutely it. And that now we can answer the question fully. What do you need to enter God's kingdom? You need the righteousness that only Jesus can give you. Now, why do I say that? Because Jesus doesn't actually say those words right here. Well, what we need to do is remember what he just said five minutes ago. Okay, so he's giving this Sermon on the Mount. He's on the hillside in Galilee. And here in verse 20, um, he's saying, if your righteousness is not better than that external-only achievement-based righteousness of the most rule-keeping people you've ever met, if your righteousness isn't better than theirs, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, but back in verse 3, which he would have just said a couple of minutes ago, he talked about people who do get into the kingdom of heaven. And here's what he said. So these are the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 3 of chapter 5. He says, Blessed, that is, happy, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So somebody's in. Somebody's included in the kingdom. The kingdom is theirs, Jesus says. Well, who are these people? He says they're the poor in spirit. They've got a righteousness greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They've got God's approval. Well, how did that happen? How did they get God's approval? By being poor in spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean having a poor self-image. It doesn't mean constantly criticizing yourself. Here's what it means. To be poor in spirit means to admit that you are spiritually bankrupt. That is, you have nothing with which to purchase or 
earn God's approval. You don't have it. You don't have sufficient righteousness of your own. And so you're not trying to earn it. Yeah, it'd be like me. You know, there's no point in me going shopping for a a $10 million mansion because there's no way. It's not going to happen. Well, in the same way, if you know you can't earn God's approval because you're spiritually bankrupt, then you you don't try to earn it. You don't have sufficient righteousness of your own. Your spiritual bank account is overdrawn. You're spiritually broke. And it's the people who admit that, who own that, who can get into God's kingdom. Now, how does that make any sense? How can admitting that I'm not righteous enough make me righteous enough? I mean, Jesus said, I need a righteousness greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I've come to realize I don't have it and I can't possibly achieve it. So how can I obtain this righteousness that I desperately need? There's only one way. Somebody has to give it to me. Somebody has to put their righteousness into my spiritual bank account. And there's only one person who can. And he's the one who's speaking. He's the one that the book of Matthew is all about. He's the one the whole New Testament is all about. In fact, he's the one the whole Bible is ultimately all about. Jesus says right here that he came to fulfill all Scripture. And if you go back to chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 21, where an angel appears to Joseph and informs Joseph has found out that Mary's going to have a baby and he knows he's not the father and he's considering, you know, breaking it off. And so this angel appears to him and says, no, don't do that because... That which is in her has been conceived of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. In Hebrew, Yeshua, which means Yahweh, the one true God saves. Yahweh saves. You shall call his name Jesus for, because he will save his people from their sins, from their sins lack of righteousness. King Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, fulfiller of all Scripture, came to save us from our lack of righteousness. To give us a righteousness that we can't earn. He'll give you the righteousness you need. But He won't do it as a reward that you've earned or that you deserve by being religious enough or by keeping the rules enough, by attending enough worship services or praying or fasting or taking communion or getting baptized or anything else you do. Now, He'll give you the righteousness you need solely as a gift that He achieved for you. You don't achieve it. I don't achieve it. We can only 
receive it as a free gift. And we receive it from him by faith. That is, by putting our trust in him and receiving, accepting his gift. That's why it's true that the only way you can get into God's kingdom is by God's grace. It's a gift. That's what grace means. That's what the righteousness Jesus gives us. It's the grace of God, a free gift paid in full by Jesus on the cross. Let me try to illustrate what I'm saying. Uh, This is a true story I heard of a dad who was telling me about a time he took his boys to the county fair. And uh, I think his sons were like fourth and fifth grade at the time. And so they they go to the fair, and of course the boys want to ride on the rides, and the dad isn't into that. So uh, what he does is he's got the tickets for the rides, and he's not going to just give them to the kids all at once because, you know, they might lose them. And he wants to keep track of where they are, so each time they want to ride a ride, uh, to come to him and ask him and tell him what they're doing. So as the uh, afternoon goes on, you know, every once in a while the sons would come up and say, hey, Dad, we want to ride the roller coaster, or we want to ride the tilt-a-whirl or whatever it is. And uh, so they'd put their hands out, and he'd, he'd put a ticket in, in each of their hands. Well, at one point, this dad's talking to a friend of his, and he sees out of the corner of his eye his, his boys come up to him again, and he, he sees them put their hands out. And so he's just talking, and he tears off one ticket and puts it in the one hand, and then he tears off another ticket and puts it in the other hand. And he looks, and there's a third hand. And he's like, wait a minute, I only have two sons. Who is this? And he looks, and it's, it's some kid he's never seen ever before in his life. And he's like, what? And then one of his sons says, oh, it's okay, Dad. He's my friend. And I told him you'd give him a ticket. And so he did. Now, on what basis did that kid get one of those tickets? He hadn't earned it. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't entitled to it. Solely because... He had a relationship with the son. That and that alone enabled him to get that ticket. Now, if you think of that ticket as entrance into the kingdom of heaven, it's exactly the same. It's it's not by any merit of our own. We don't deserve it. We're not entitled to it. We don't achieve it. It's solely through relationship with the son connection to the Son. And that's what faith means. Having a faith relationship with the Son. That's how we gain the kingdom of heaven. That's how we gain God's approval. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul talks about in the book of Philippians chapter 3. He's just been talking about all of his so-called righteousness that he had achieved personally as a very, very religious Pharisee. He was one of those guys, and he was actually one of the top. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, man. Nobody nobody tried harder than he did. And then he says this in verse 8. He says, I count all things, referring to all this stuff that he'd achieved, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of, here's the relationship, 
knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, in relationship with him, not, look at this, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. That is, not on the basis of rule-keeping, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God, not from me, from God on the basis of faith. That's the righteousness we need. And Jesus offers it freely to us if we will receive it by trusting in Him, by relying on Him. That's what faith is. That's what it is. So it's not enough just to know about this, to know that Jesus has this gift of righteousness that He offers. It's not enough just to know that in our heads. We actually have to receive His righteousness by choosing to rely on His achievement instead of ours. That's what it means, faith, relying on Jesus. We've got to stop trusting in how good we can be. It doesn't mean we stop trying to be good, but we stop relying on that to gain God's approval. We won't get it that way. Instead, we rely on Jesus and His righteousness and what He will do. Scripture says to receive Him. As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved, the Bible says. So we receive His gift to get into the kingdom, and then we continue to rely on His righteousness to live out uh, the life He wants us to live as a member of His kingdom. So his righteousness not only qualifies us to get in, his righteousness actually begins to transform us. By his spirit, he does this heart-transforming work that enables us to rely on Jesus more and more and meet God's standard of true righteousness as we trust in him. This is how Paul says it in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the life that God wants us to live. The life of relying on Jesus Christ, his Son, who achieved on the cross for us the righteousness that we can't achieve on our own. And if you've never done that, if you have never put your trust in Christ to make you right with God, to come into your life by His Spirit to begin His life-transforming work, you could do that today. And as I said, this, this coronavirus thing is a, is a good time for us to think seriously about these kinds of issues. And there is no more important issue than whether or not you are right with God, I am right with God, as Jesus says, we, we can't get there on our own, but He will bring us to God. He will give us the righteousness we need. So you could just write wherever you are. The exact words you use aren't important, but you could call out to Him and say, Lord Jesus, I, I've heard what you said, and I've realized that, that I won't be a part of your kingdom based on my goodness, based how hard I try. 
But Lord, You on the cross took the punishment for my sin. And You are offering me Your righteousness. Lord, would You put Your righteousness in my spiritual bank account and make me right with You? You could do that right now even as we pray. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us and then we've got another song we're going to do together and then we'll wrap it up. But right now, let's, let's bow and pray. Lord Jesus, these words are, are powerful and um, by Your Spirit, they just expose this great need. We're, we're more fallen than we have dared to believe But Lord, You have shown us that we are far more loved than we ever dared to hope. And so, Lord, I just I come to You and and pray that if there's anybody who's listening now who realizes they need the righteousness that they don't have, that they will call out to You for that gift. And by Your grace, they would receive You Lord Jesus, into their lives. And You by Your Spirit would indwell them and and give them the righteousness they need and help them live in new relationship with You. Lord, may it be true that all of us are living by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. Thank You for that just unspeakably great gift. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
That's uh, what we have for this week. 
And so I um, want to just encourage you to keep keep on trusting, keep on praying. If if you didn't have a chance to submit a prayer request in the in the comment section, uh, you can always shoot an email to the church office uh, secretary at philida.org, or you send it to me, Pastor Scott at philida.org, and we'll be happy to pray for you. And we're going to take some time and pray for any requests that came in. So uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll plan to do it again next week, Lord willing. So we'll see you then.